So usually, at least my take, and I remember when I was a medical student, a long time ago, there was a big Daniel Revelation seminar and the advertisements, you know, big intimidating beasts. And I went because I wanted to find out what was going to happen in the world. And I remember a lot of talk about communism and how, you know, some creature in Revelation referred to communism. And, uh, you know, this was before uh, the the very dramatic events that happened just a short time later with the Berlin Wall and all of that. It didn't fit at all the interpretation of communism at that time. So we tend to look at Revelation and think, now we're going to get the timeline. We're going to find out about the future, the next pope, and all of that. But is that really the the mindset that we should have when we think about the book of Revelation? Um, I'll just list here. These are probably the three best books um, that I've read on Revelation. So I know none of you have time to sit down and, and read these, but I'll just li- list them here and you can... I think it's maybe just a little too loud, Gary. Do you mind turning that down? Um, Sigby Tonstead, who's no longer here, wrote a fantastic book on Revelation. This was his doctoral dissertation. And uh, Richard Balcom uh, wrote two books which have been very helpful for me. He doesn't take a cosmic conflict perspective, okay? But there are really some very helpful, meaty things in these books that, that we'll talk about here. Okay, so not everyone in history has been a fan of the book of Revelation. Okay, here's Martin Luther. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Now, it's true that sometime after 1522, when he wrote this, that he did find some helpful things in Revelation. But as most have noted, uh, what he found helpful in it was as a hammer to get the Pope and the Catholic Church. All right, so um, anyway, he, he didn't have a great appreciation for Revelation. And maybe just one point we could make here, we could admire and glean many important things from the reformers and all kinds of people, but we don't have to agree with them in every single detail. We're allowed to disagree. What if we find value? What if our spirit does accommodate itself to the book of Revelation? We find something worthwhile. Um, We can still appreciate everything that that Martin Luther did. Okay, some other, all of these well-known individuals. D.H. Lawrence wrote a book called The Apocalypse. And he thought Revelation was a hideous version of Christianity, a repulsive work. Harold Bloom wrote a book called The Revelation of St. John the Divine. And his interpretation was resentment and not love is the teaching. A book without wisdom, goodness, kindness, or affection of any kind. Okay, and C.H. Dodd wrote, We are bound to judge that in its conception of the character of God, and when I read this, my ears went up. Hmm, interesting. In its conception of the character of God and its attitude to man, the book falls below the level, not only of the teaching of Jesus, but of the best parts of the Old Testament. Wait, just think about that. Okay, we struggled with the God of the Old Testament, but... For some revelation, it's, it's even worse. We also have to explain that book. Now, here's, um, here's a counter to this. And Richard Bauckham was here two or three years ago in Loma Linda. And I had a chance to interview him during one of our Bible studies here with medical students. Okay, and this is what he said in one of his books here. The Apocalypse of John is a work of immense learning astonishingly meticulous literary artistry, remarkable creative imagination, radical political critique, 
and profound theology. So he found a lot uh, to admire and appreciate in the book of Revelation. And, and Sigby Tonstead said the message of Revelation is best represented as a message of healing and not as a message of destruction. But the images are so strong, so compelling, that most read this book and destruction would be perhaps be one of those words that would come to mind. He took a different interpretation of um, Revelation. Okay, so how are we going to put it together? First of all, what is the purpose of this book? And I don't know, I'm on a variety of email lists and I just tend to get a lot of things that when something happens in the world, and so you know what happened with the Pope recently stepping down, and so there's just a lot of um, excitement, it seems, on different ends. Some people thought this was going to be the Pope at the time of the end, and some people now are saying that, well, the next Pope, that will be the devil impersonated. Okay, so here's, here's one of the, the things that I read here. Well, we've been alerting you that the next and the last Pope will be a devil impersonating John Paul II. Through the study of Revelation chapter 17, God has led us to a most startling truth, confirming that we are nearer to the end of all things than ever imagined. We are prompted by our loving God to share this prophecy, that none need be ensnared by the global events soon to transpire, which will engulf the world in the greatest, grandest deception yet contrived by Satan. We dare to declare this interpretation to the world because we adhere only to sound biblical interpretation. That's what we're going to talk about. What is the sound biblical interpretation of Revelation? This means we unlock Bible prophecy by using the Bible as its own interpreter. By doing so, we are certain of the correctness of the revelation. Okay? I'm not going to share where this is from. But, um, so, th but the problem is, and I kind of alluded to this you know, when I was a medical student, is there were very confident things. In fact, if you go back historically, the way we read, this refers to Turkey very clearly. This nation, horn, king, whatever it is, it's Turkey. Well, when time goes by, and obviously it isn't Turkey, well, it's Iran, or it's Iraq, or it's communism, or you know, we, we are continually updating the symbols to try to fit what we see going on in the world around us. And I'm just going to suggest that I don't think that's, that's the best way to interpret this book. So what do we do with Revelation and time? Time is certainly is an important part of this book. And here are the the three most common ways of reading Revelation. One is preterism, where John saw mainly the past and things that were in his time. And so people that, a preterist would see the events of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And, and those events contemporary in that time were things that had already happened as this is what John is describing with all the symbols and the metaphors. Okay, uh, certainly the most popular approach in um, America is futurism, where John saw distant future events. And one part of this is dispensationalism. Uh, the Left Behind series would be an example of kind of a dispensationalist way of looking at Revelation. So it's an evangelical interpretation that understands God to have revealed himself in a series of dispensations. So we have certain times where God reveals. And the, the book of Revelation is entirely, essentially, future. And it describes things that will happen in the very, very end. And so, and, and with so many symbols and complex symbols, it, it does, with a creative imagination, you can, you can really make a lot of different interpretations. And uh, historicism. Here, the approach would be John saw future events, but is concerned with a historical continuity. Okay, so the, the book of Revelation sees things in kind of a historical continuity. It's not just in the distant future, 
Okay, and, and maybe uh, could I tweak on that just a little bit here? Could, can we have a cosmic conflict interpretation, a way of interpreting revelation? And this approach would be, well, revelation is concerned not just with the future or even merely a historical continuity, but in the past, present, and future. Um, this, is, this is maybe an approach that, that I would like to take. It's not just the future, it's even the past. For example, uh, when we get to Revelation 12, the war broke out in heaven. I think we can make a really good case. This is something that happened a long, long time ago. In fact, if we want to make the Bible chronological, okay, that even before Genesis 1-1, the creation of our earth, we need to back up and take the war in heaven because there was that serpent in the tree. Something was going on even before the creation of our world. So it's concerned with events in the past and this verse here in Revelation 1:19. Write then the things that you see, both the things that are now and the things that will happen afterward. Okay, so we have a past, a now, and a future. And I think the revelation takes in a huge scope, a, a gigantic picture of a cosmic conflict, and it tries to help us put these things in perspective. Okay, so again, Sigby, revelation is concerned with human reality at all of history. All right, so here's the basic um, structure of Revelation, which is pretty straightforward. There's a prologue and an epilogue, and the, we have the seven churches here, which um, I think we'll talk about next time very briefly. And the seven churches, yeah, there were churches in that time where this message went around to, but I think we also represent our part of the seven churches. And this introduces us to the core of the message here, which involves seven seals, seven trumpets, and between Revelation 12 and 14, we'll just call the cosmic conflict, and then the seven bowls of God's wrath. So we're gonna spend most of our time here talking about these four areas, the seals, trumpets, cosmic conflict, and the bowls of God's wrath. So many individuals, not just as part of this church, have looked at the book of Revelation and have seen that chapters 12 to 14, this whole cosmic conflict area, um, seems to represent the heart of the book, that the book seems to revolve around what goes on in these chapters. So a number of individuals in different uh, books here have seen that, and I've just kind of strung these quotes together, that the likelihood that Revelation has a chiastic structure that puts the war of the ages at the center of the chiasm sets this section, Revelation 12 to 14, apart as the one that gives perspective to the entire narrative. This section of the book stands out as a fresh beginning, an uncharacteristically abrupt fresh start, and as the pinnacle of the apocalyptic prophecy. Um, I think as, as we'll see, this just is really helpful. If we see the war in heaven, the issues surrounding that, and then that we put the other seven seals, trumpets, bowls as revolving around that and expanding on that theme. So I'll, I'll have a chance to talk about that more later. So we kind of think of it this way. We've got the cosmic conflict, okay, and the trumpets, seals, and the bowls inform us and kind of in a very interesting way expand on what's going on in the cosmic conflict. So I would see it this way. Now, how it's usually interpreted, you know, especially, if, well, in, in most perspectives, is that we go chronologically. We march in time through the seals, and then we march in time through the trumpets, and then we march in time through the, the bowls, and then we have the second coming, the millennium, and the new earth. And so it's that it, the Revelation is a chronologic book. And um, I think that 
we could make a really good case for overlap between these three. That we have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and in fact, all of these have the same endpoint. Okay, the, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls, they all end at the same place, and we can make lots and lots of points of continuity between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. It doesn't mean that there isn't forward progression. That's why I've tried to have the seals here, the trumpets seem to be moving forward, the bowls seem to be moving forward. So there is continuity, or there is a forward movement, but there also is a lot of uh, repetition. So just as an example of that, I mentioned they all have the same endpoint. And I think that just seems undeniable when you read this. Look at the seventh seal ends with a scene at the golden altar of incense, and with rumblings and peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The seventh trumpet ends with a scene at the covenant box, Okay, same as the golden altar of incense with flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The seventh plague ends with a loud voice from the throne, so with the altar of incense, the covenant box, and the throne, and with, same thing, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a terrible earthquake. So do we see this happening three times over and over? Or is this kind of like a, a mark of an ending of all three of these? coming to the same place. So um, I saw this movie on a flight to Germany a, a long time ago. And it actually wasn't a very good movie, but it, it uh, made me just think of something. Uh, it's about the story of uh, the assassination of a U.S. president. And what the movie does, it's called Vantage Point, is um, you see what happens from different perspectives. You see one individual, how they saw it, what they witnessed, and you're confused after that. Then you see another individual who saw the same thing. You see their perspective and you see another. Okay? And so putting it all together at the end of the movie, yes, it does build up to a climax and in time things move on and there's a surprise ending. But I would like to kind of see revelation that way, that we see overlap, that what we see in the seals informs us about the trumpets and vice versa and the bulls. Where we find something out about the seals when we read the bulls. There's overlap. They're trying to expand on the same theme. So I think um, rather than just thinking of this as we usually do, scientifically, now let's spend a lot of time on this horn and, and then let's move on chronologically. I think we should think of this uh, kind of like a, a piece of music, a great symphony, where there is a theme that goes all the way through. Okay, but what happens? The theme repeats and we get a variation on the theme. And the theme repeats again. get another variation on the theme. And it does build up to a climax and an end. But we have repetition of the theme with additional parts added and variation. And I think that's what's happening in, in Revelation. We need to be more creative and musical and artistic in trying to understand the book. Okay, another point that, that tries to say that there's overlap rather than just a straight chronologic timeline first four trumpets are pulled out, poured out on the earth, sea, rivers and springs, sun, moon and stars. First bowls, is this coincidental? That they are also poured out on the earth, sea, rivers and springs, sun, moon and stars. Okay, I mean, such direct overlap there. Okay, and the sixth trumpet, it's released the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. Sixth bowl, the angel pours out his bowl on the great Euphrates River. It's just coincidental that, that the sixth trumpet and bowl we both have the Euphrates River. Now, I think these are important markers that tell us maybe we're describing the same thing, but we're looking at it from a different perspective. Okay, so there's repetition, but again, just like a great symphony, 
that repeats a theme, there is progression. There is something that builds up to a climax. So we can certainly make a case for not just repetition, but progression. So as an example, in the seals, we have a rider on a pale colored horse. They were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill by means of war, famine, disease, and wild animals. Okay, we have the trumpets. And now we have one-third of the earth, sea, rivers, sun, moon, and stars. And then when we move to the bulls, every living creature in the sea died. That's progression. We're going from one-fourth to one-third to everything being affected. Um, as another example, in the seals, okay, we have a holding back of the winds because the people are not yet sealed. Okay, we get to the trumpets. Now we have sealing. We have the mark of God's seal on their foreheads. And the winds are no longer held back. So there's clearly progression. And then finally in the bulls, within the wrath of God is ended. Okay, so there's, there's definitely a, a progression, an unfolding of things. Okay, one more example. I've said this is kind of the heart of the book here, Revelation 12 to 14, the war in heaven where the ancient serpent was thrown down to earth. Okay, and this part is, is very much expanded in a kind of a temporal way here in the trumpets. Notice in the third trumpet, a large star burning like a torch which fell from heaven. Well, I think we can make a, a really good case who that large star is that fell from heaven. Okay, but notice what happens. We get to the fifth trumpet, and now I saw a star which had fallen down to earth, and it was given the key to the abyss. Okay, so it fell from heaven down to the earth. It's given the key to the abyss, and we're not left much doubt about who it is. The name means the destroyer. Okay, but then when we get to the end of the book, Guess what? That large star that fell to the earth was given to the key to the abyss now is thrown into the abyss. Okay, so it describes the fall from heaven to earth and then from the earth down into the abyss. And all of this is straight out of Isaiah 14. Okay, the brilliant star in heaven that fell and even in there it falls to the earth and then down into the abyss. But we get a lot more detail um, here in Revelation. <clears throat> Okay, so here's a quote that uh, expands on this. John's vision creates a single symbolic universe in which the readers may live for the time it takes to read or hear the book. And I just think this would be really helpful. You know how this was done um, back when this book was written is the book would arrive in church and someone would get up and read the whole thing through. Okay, how do we usually do Revelation? Uh, boy, we... You know, one chapter, we're going to spend a month and try to, who are all the kings and the horns, and we get lost in the details. Um, it would actually be really helpful, I think, to have a kind of a dramatic performance. We assign each of you a part, okay, and we just get through the whole book in one city. Okay, that's the way it used to be done. So the power, the profusion, and the consistency of the symbols have a literary theological purpose. They create a symbolic world which readers can enter so fully that it affects them and changes their perception of the world. Most readers were originally, of course, hearers. Revelation was designed for oral enactment in Christian worship services. Its effect would therefore be somewhat comparable to a dramatic performance in which the audience enters the world of the drama for its duration and can have the perception of the world outside the drama powerfully shifted by their experience of the world of the drama. So... I really like this. Revelation is meant to change the way we see the world. It's meant to have an effect on us that then affects how we view, how we perceive what's going on around us. So it's kind of like a, 
like a movie 2,000 years ago. So here are some, I'm just going to list three principles of interpretation. Okay? The first, um, which uh, Sigmi Tonstad has mentioned several times and I've found very helpful, is to become a re-reader. Okay? I've told you that when I read neurology, I would be bored to death reading the same article or the same book a second time. Okay, but not so with, uh, with the Bible and certainly with the book of Revelation. Um, I read this book many, many times and there's still so much I don't understand. Okay, but we need to become a re-reader. And one example of that is, as I've said, it's not composed in neat chronological matter, uh, manner. The seals, trumpets, bowls of wrath perhaps are telling the same story but from different perspective. So as you're reading along and you read something in the trumpets, all of a sudden you understand, oh, that explains something from the seals. You get to the bowls of wrath and you understand, okay, now that helps to explain something else. Well, then you need to start over again and read the whole thing through and something in the seals may inform you something about the bowls of wrath. So we need to really have this book in mind if we're going to understand it. So it would be really helpful here if, um, if all of you would read the book of Revelation as we're doing this. And don't just you know, take what I'm, what I'm telling you here Next time we're going to try to get to Revelation 5. So read those first five chapters. Uh, that would be really helpful. But not just a reader, but a rereader. Second point, which is, I think, extremely important, is that we very much highlight the Old Testament allusions uh, that make up the book of Revelation. Revelation is made up of the Old Testament. I mean, large portions of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah. Okay, and... Um, I know what I had done for most of my life is reading the book of Revelation, you come to a little verse, and oh, isn't that neat? That came out of the Old Testament. You thumb back, and sure, there it is. Now we're going back to Revelation. Let's read. And I think that the best approach, really, is when you find something that is from the Old Testament, that you not just identify it and write the verse down, but go back to the Old Testament and really read around. What is being said in the Old Testament? Okay, and how does that inform us about Revelation? They're not just brief little... Uh, interesting how John was able to cut and paste the Old Testament together and make this book. The, the passages that are used in the Old Testament are used and meant to be understand, understood in the context of what's being said in the Old Testament. So, uh, for example, we, we had a whole talk on God's wrath a few months ago. Well, again, are we allowed to use that information? Can we take everything that we've read about the wrath of God in the Old Testament and in Romans 1 and other places and can we apply that to uh, the wrath of the Lamb? I think we have to. Okay, this is not what is said in Revelation is not just meant to stand alone, absent the previous 65 books of the Bible. Um, one of the most exciting things for me in the last few years is to have something to say that uh, I think applies to this silence in heaven. Well, where's the Old Testament reference for that? I think there's a wonderful Old Testament reference for that, which gives a, an incredible meaning about the silence in heaven. So as we go through all of these things, we need to find where is it in the Old Testament, what did it mean in the Old Testament, and then how do we apply that um, to Revelation. <clears throat> okay, and then the third point, and this will not come as a surprise to any of you that have been attending this Bible study for a while, that we read the book of Revelation and see that there's more than one acting subject. God is not the only one acting in the book of Revelation. Not only tells the story of the slaughtered lamb, the violently slaughtered lamb, it also tells the dragon story. Okay, so that we have a, a triangle, that everything that is going on is not just us and God, but there is an active demonic force. And Revelation, more than any other book in the Bible, really tries to bring that story out. 
Okay, if we view everything spiritual as just between us and God, and we don't bring another person, other forces into that, you know, it's it's like watching Star Wars, and we just put the Emperor and Darth Vader. We do, and just we just don't uh, pay any attention to that. We watch the uh, every great story. It has a villain, okay, and there's a personified real person villain um, here behind the Bible, and we need to understand why that villain is still around and what he's up to. <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> now some people look at the book of Revelation and don't see symbols. There are actually people that see everything as very literal, and I think that is very difficult to do as we go through all of, all of these things, and what is very easy to do is to slip between, okay, that's clearly a symbol, and I'm interpreting the symbol, and then we come to something else, and we say, well, that's literal. And then we end up with an interesting mix of what we take symbolically and literally. And I think I shared with you a couple months ago an individual who, on the website, by Revelation 19, has Jesus coming back with a sword ready to, ready to do, well, you know what he's going to do with a sword. It's in this position. Well, no, the, the sword comes out of the mouth. Okay? I've never seen a picture of the second coming with the sword coming out of the mouth. That's a very important meaning. What is the meaning of that? So again, these are symbols that, that we want to try to wrap our minds around, the symbols and the metaphors. Okay, and, and a really good quote that I like on this, symbols and metaphors. Revelation has suffered from interpretation which takes its images too literally. Even the most sophisticated interpreters all too easily slip into treating the images as codes which need only to be decoded to yield literal predictions. But this fails to take the images seriously as images. John depicts the future in images in order to be able to do both more and less than a literal prediction could. Less because Revelation does not offer a literal outline of the course of future events, as though prophecy were merely written, uh, as prophecy were merely history written in advance. Okay, that's usually how we understand Revelation. It's, it's prophecy, but it's merely history written in advance. Okay, but it does more because what it does provide is insight into the nature of God's purpose for the future and does so in a way that shapes the reader's attitudes to the future and invites their active participation in the divine purpose. So, um, again, the book of Revelation not so much informs us about a future timeline of events. It changes the way we view the world around us. And I think it, it opens up to us the issues in the cosmic conflict and we see the players in the cosmic conflict even as we observe the world around us, not just in a theoretical um, sense. Okay, and uh, I'm going to finish on this, which is, I think, really interesting. This last quote by Richard Bauckham here, the, the meticulous attention to detail. Okay, I thought Revelation seems kind of chaotic. We jump around and who can put it all together? But listen to this quote by Richard Bauckham. Revelation has been composed with such meticulous attention to detail of language and structure that scarcely a word can have been chosen without deliberate reflection on its relationship to the work as an integrated, interconnected whole. Scarcely a word can have been chosen without affecting the meaning of the book. And let me give you some examples of this. I find this really interesting. It, there's so many sevens of things in Revelation. There are seven Beatitudes scattered throughout the book of Revelation. So first one's in Revelation 1.3. Happy is the one who reads this book. And if you go through, you will find seven times happy is the person who does this, happy is the person who does that. So there are seven of them. And of course, seven's an important number, number in the Bible. Then since seven is the number of completeness, 
This specific number of blessings is included to indicate the fullness of blessing to be bestowed on the reader or hearer who faithfully obeys the message of revelation. Kind of interesting, the number here has a more of a theological significance than it does in a, in a time sequence. So we have seven times the word prophecy is mentioned, seven times Christ reassures in Revelation that I am coming. Okay, we have interesting, very symmetrical numbers, 144,000. We have a new Jerusalem that has 12 gates and the dimensions of a perfect cube. Interesting. We have time periods which appear to be the same, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half days and times, time and half a time. Seven times uh, a reference to God that's from the Old Testament, the Lord God, God Almighty is used. Seven times the phrase, the one who sits on the throne is used. And again, the person constructing this book is it's just chance that all these things are mentioned seven times. Um, I, I think, uh, boy, it'd, have, it'd be quite the odds just to happen to mention seven of all of these. This is the one I like uh, the most. Seven times in total, these three phrases are used to describe God that are considered to be the same. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, what is the meaning of that? And so if we make a table out of this, this kind of has a, a chiastic structure also that in the beginning of Revelation, at the end of the prologue, the beginning of the vision, we have first God, who is the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, then we read on a few verses and we come to Christ, who is the first and the last. Okay, we get through the whole book and then we come to the very end and there again we have God, who is the Alpha, Omega and the beginning and the end. And then we get to the very end of the book and now we have Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay, so seven times, but just notice the progression and also that the only time all three titles are used are in reference to Christ. Okay, so what is the meaning? And I like the meaning here that, that the, just the way this is all constructed, there, there is a meaning to this, and the meaning is that Christ is to be fully identified with the fullness of the eternal God. And it doesn't diminish God the Father, but it is elevating Christ here as occupying all three titles, Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and the end. Okay, there's a theological significance to that. So again, quoting a lot of Richard Bauckham here, but this is how he put it together in his book. As a way of stating unambiguously that Jesus Christ belongs to the fullness of the eternal being of God, this surpasses anything in the New Testament. So we want to make a case that Jesus was none other than God in human form. Here's a good place to make it in Revelation. This pattern underlies the identification of Christ with God, which, use, which the use of the titles themselves expresses. It shows that the identification of Christ with God implied by the titles is not the result of an adoptionist Christology in which the mere man, Jesus, is exalted at his resurrection to divine status. Important as the resurrection is for Christ's participation in God's lordship, these titles he shares with God indicate that he shared the eternal being of God from before creation. It does not designate him a second God, but includes him in the eternal being of the one God of Israel. The importance of John's extraordinarily high Christology for the message of Revelation is that it makes it absolutely clear that what Christ does, God does. Revelation's Christology must be incorporated in our account of its understanding of God. God is related to the world not only as the transcendent Holy One, but also as the slaughtered lamb. And as we'll discuss, this is the defining image of God in Revelation, the slaughtered lamb. 
Okay, so just a few other examples here of the kind of the, the numbers, how interesting they are. That seven times we have the word Christ or Messiah in Revelation. And 28 times the word lamb. Now that's kind of interesting. I'll talk about that here on the next slide. And seven of these, the lamb is coupled with the phrase God and the lamb. Just This is why every word literally seems to have its place. So what does that mean? The lamb, seven times four. Well, what is four all the way through the Bible? The four ends of the earth. Uh, it always is a, is a reference to the world. Okay, so again, Richard Bauckham. Four is, after seven, the symbolic number most commonly and consistently used in Revelation. As seven is the number of completeness, four is the number of the world, with its four corners, four divisions, and we could use lots of Old Testament verses for that. The first four judgments in each of the series of seven affect the world. So the seven times four occurrences of the Lamb therefore indicate the worldwide scope of his complete victory. This corresponds to the fact that the phrase by which John designates all the nations of the world is fourfold, okay, and occurs seven times. Its first occurrence establishes its connection with the lamb's victory. So I find that interesting. Seven times four, 28, to get the number of the lamb. Okay, so, and again, to complete this, four references, they're also to the seven spirits. The seven spirits are the fullness of God's power sent into the earth. The four references to the sevenfold spirit corresponds to the seven occurrences of the fourfold phrase, I know this is getting complicated, which designates all the peoples of the earth. They also correspond to the 28 references of the lamb, which indicate the worldwide scope of the lamb's complete victory. So the seven spirits are closely associated with the victorious lamb. The four references to them indicate that the lamb's victory is implemented throughout the world by the fullness of divine power. So you'd want to take this book and read it slowly um, but, but I think he's on to something here. So just uh, the last slide. Seven times we have the witness of Jesus and seven times, and this is you and I, the witnesses of Jesus. And I think um, uh, I, in the previous quotes I read that the revelation is meant to change us. It's meant to change how we perceive the world. And what we see here is Jesus here, the, the witness of Jesus, the self-sacrificial, other-centered, giving love of Jesus and we are tied into that, seven times the witnesses of Jesus. So what matters most about the humanity of Jesus in Revelation is the witness which he bore and which his followers continue. So Revelation encourages us to live out that kind of a life. If God is not present in the world as the one who sits on the throne, he is present as the lamb who conquers by suffering. Christ's suffering witness and sacrificial death are, in fact, the key event in God's conquest of evil and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And there should be a quote there at the end. All right, so uh, next time we'll, we'll get through the trumpets and we'll get a little bit into the throne room scene in Revelation 5. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you again for a book that um, certainly has meaning and certainly has a depth far beyond uh, where we've even scratched the surface. But help us as we read this book, as we reflect on the words, to ourselves experience a revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen.